Naima Lowe created the installation, Aren't They All Just Love Songs Anyway, in 2019 for the Jack Straw New Media Gallery. So when you go into the gallery, the first thing is you'll probably, you know, you hear music and see it's sort of dimly lit and there's video projected on two sides of the room. And one of the videos has, you know, sort of headphones, you know, connected to it that you listen to. And then you realize that the on the other side of the room is the video that the music is kind of coming from or is connected with. And the music that you're hearing, you'll see it's sort of connected to, you know, a series of figures that you'll see people are singing, but you realize that the music and the singing don't exactly match, but they kind of match, but they kind of don't match. Um, and that's kind of the conceit of the work, of this particular part of the work. The show as a whole is called Aren't They All Just Love Songs Anyway? And that's named after this piece, the videos that I'm describing now, which is a series, kind of ongoing series, where I posed a question to various people in my life and said, choose a song by a Black artist that you find compelling, that you can sing along to, that you really love, um, and then sing it for me on camera as if no one is listening. Part of what you see is people on screen with these headphones on sort of singing their, their asses off. And the music that you're hearing is actually these compositions. So once I got these performances, I then worked with my father, who's a musician, and another dear friend of ours, Taylor Hobinam, who's also a musician. And we sort of created compositions based on both whatever the original song was and on the performances that you see on screen. The video across the room is mostly these kind of like moving, gushing, abstract flowers in a vase with water. And the sound that you'll hear in the headphones on that side is a rendition of the John Coltrane composition Naima, after which I am named. And then this poem that I wrote that's about kind of being named after this song and kind of its evolution. My name is a ballad by John Coltrane composed 30 years before I was born. Today, my father reminded me that I wasn't named for the song so much as for its meaning in Swahili, graceful. And that combined with my middle name, Niambi, I was given a name that means graceful melody. My naming was an aspiration, a wish. It was 1979, and my father wore dashiki shirts while my mother draped mud cloth on our couch. We weren't even the most Afrocentric of our friends in that small Connecticut college town. There's also a huge set of ropes in various, uh, they're about inch and a half thick ropes in various shades of pink, hanging from the ceiling and kind of coiling down onto the ground. Part of the conceit of that piece is that it changes in every location. So the ropes, it's very site-specific, right? They're hanging from, you know, whatever, the 14, 15-foot ceilings that are in the gallery there. The first time I showed it, I had a much lower ceiling at another point. It hung in a sim somewhat similar way, but not exactly the same configuration. 
And then other times I've shown it in a very tight, crowded space. And, you know, I sort of created a set of parameters about how it exists, but the actual kind of execution changes. And I think that's apparent when you see it, but I hope that people would kind of think about the idea of sort of imagining it having a life before and after that's not the same. I think of that piece as kind of like a self-portrait in a sense and the sense of having like a body and a kind of way of operating that has both consistency no matter what, but then also is adaptable. I like the idea of people sort of imagining the 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 before and after of it kind of transforming just like just like as you would imagine like a person that you meet right that they had all these experiences before and after it but so even if that moment with them is like you're in that present and that's how it is part of what makes them interesting is the what's before and comes after there's also various like drawings and paintings in shades of pink kind of a lot of color fields and swirls and also outside of the gallery before you come in there's a lot of sort of smaller kind of gestural drawings and paintings also in pink very you know sort of abstract forms so it's a lot of different pieces kind of all together I named it aren't they all just love songs anyway partly because the question of love and the question of what constituted it was sort of at the center of all of this work I sat down with Naima in the Jack Straw Studios to talk about where this installation came from, its relationship to her previous work, and the process of collaborating with her father, jazz musician Bill Lowe. I love what I read that you wrote where you said that the art that you created was a reaction to bad advice. Mm -hmm. Partially. (laughs) I got this bad advice about various things, like bad advice that talking about your feelings, about love in particular, is kind of like not what a serious, like, feminist, grown-up woman artist does, right? We have all these sort of assumptions. Like, you know, pink in particular has this kind of poppy, pop cultural kind of thing. And we imagine, like, pop culture to be the this kind of throwaway invention that's for, you know, consumption by preteen girls, right? And that at the center of that is questions of, like, love and what we need in order to love. Like, what is more important to our (laughs) survival as a species, actually, than our capacity to love in a variety of ways? And then it was also some of the other pieces of advice that I reference is, you know, the advice of, you know, certain kinds of abstract, expressive forms aren't what sort of Black artists of a certain context do, or that dealing with music because I'm not a musician is not something I'm supposed to be doing. And it's not so much that I actually made the work in reaction to it. It's more that I actively, when I came into, you know, all this work I made in the last year, and I had this opportunity to have a residency where I didn't have to do anything but do my own work. And and I was like, I'm going to really take advantage of this and dig into things that have kind of freaked me out before. And as I then came back together and put all the work into this show, I started to think like, oh, this is me having enough confidence in what I'm doing to ignore or to kind of push on that advice. I started in on Pink in part because I was actually writing an essay about the um, experience at my last job of having all this harassment, this like racist, deeply misogynistic, 
the things I was getting in my email and on my phone and in letters daily for weeks. And it took me a long time to be able to come back and actually like talk about it publicly, what had occurred and how awful it was. And I would work on the essay for a day, right, at another residency, and then spend another set of time needing to recover from it. And what I was recovering doing was painting and painting in pink, which is not my training, is not my background, but it just felt good. And at first I was really having a hard time. I was like, this is just a mess. No one needs to see this. Even if I keep doing it, it's just some bullshit. You know, like, this is bad. But then I started to realize, like, no, no, this is good. That was the advice that I was taking in, was that, like, having my art practice be a, a matter of taking care of myself was one of the key things that, like, you know, I I had teachers who would berate their students for, you know, this isn't art therapy, this is real art. As if all of the greats or whatever, these great white men that we, you know, aren't making their work in order to tend to themselves. I had this realization when I talk about abstract expressionism, is I was like, I love this work. I love, you know, including the work by the the artists that we sort of think about at the center of that movement are mostly you know, white men, I love that they just kind of escaped into their psyches and wanted to create from as visceral a place as they could. I loved that, and I wanted to embrace it as well. And so letting go of the bad advice was just a process that I had been in. And then when I came together and saw the work, I realized, like, oh, that's not the only thing that brings it all together, but it's definitely a way to kind of think about what it's doing. And going into directions that are brand new for me. And if you'd asked me two, three, five, ten years ago if I would be making things like this, I would have I would have laughed. And so that's that's the advice part, that these are things that have always been there, but that I had talked myself out of making. So that departure that you're talking about, would you say that's what's unexpected is the content, the form, the process, or like all of it. The content is pretty consistent. I would say that a lot of my work has been collaborative, for example. A lot of this work is super collaborative. There's all these layers of collaboration in these videos with musicians, with people who come to sing, with, you know, the kind of ideas that I'm working with. And that collaboration, not just that I collaborate on the work, but that the act of collaboration and the narrative and story of the collaboration is, like, important to the work, right? Questions of, like, what is blackness and what is black cultural production and how is it a part of how we live and understand and survive has definitely been in a lot of my work. Music in one way or another, even though this is the first time where I've sort of said, like, I'm centering musical production in a really, really explicit way. It's not the first, but it's like an early adopter (laughs) or maybe one (laughs) where it's like central in a way that I feel more confident in and certainly love as a theme. The possibility and challenges of love as Black people has been a theme in a lot of my work. Um, Familial relationships, other kinds of loving relationships have been in a lot of my work. And I think that the pink drawing and sculpture are kind of kind of emerge from some of that same space 
the process is a, more of a departure in the sense that I have never – I mean, I have put pen to paper before. I've made things out of paint before, but I don't have training in it. I don't think of myself in that way. And so that and the rope sculpture are definitely um, departures formally and in terms of how I go about them. But then, you know, as I think about it, I don't know that it's – I mean, it is a departure, but – you know, every time I do go back and, you know, write a new artist statement or create new kind of combinations of the work that I'm doing, I think there's these central themes that keep coming up. And I remind myself that, you know, and I think this is true for a lot of artists, is even when we radically change our, you know, forms or ideas or whatever, there's usually sort of a center that's us that we kind of gravitate around even as we develop and transform as artists and people. But yeah, so all that's to say is like, yes, this is a the departure formally in particular is big. You know, you definitely, there's an explosion of pink in my studio that did not exist before. <laughs> um, there's an explosion of, you know, paint and drawing materials and, you know, dye and rope. These are not things that were happening before. But again, sort of the bigger thematic Issues and in some ways, some of the formal considerations were happening. They just were, I kind of came at them in different directions. As a living creature, I am part of two kinds of forces growth and decay, sprouting and withering, living and dying. And at any given moment of our lives, each one of us is actively located somewhere along a continuum between these two forces. What was it like collaborating with your father? Had you done that before? You know, my father and I have been close for most of my life. My very first film that I made in 2007 and eight or so it's actually about him. So it's this film called Birthmarks that's about his experience of witnessing the 1967 Newark riots. He was a reporter, young man. He was like in his early 20s and witnessed the Newark police instigate the 67 Newark riots um, as an act of aggression against people who were protesting. And I made the film kind of about... That experience worked with archival materials quite a bit and also worked with the act of sort of like repetitive storytelling about this experience because part of the story is that this is something that he had told me from childhood, right? This is like a major kind of formative concept in my <laughs> in my upbringing, which is like this thing happened. It's mm-hmm. a big deal. Um, it shaped his experience and his life and thus – my experience in life in a variety of ways. And part of the reason it's called birthmarks is because he has these scars on his back that are were from the, you know, because the police beat him up. And so he has these scars and the scars, um, there's like a story that I kind of have a memory of of thinking that they were birthmarks when I was a child. And I was like six or seven years old. And then us kind of learning what the reality of that was together. And so we collaborated on that. We haven't really, hadn't really collaborated since then. And in some ways in this last year or now, you know, two, two and a half years since I've sort of emancipated myself from, um, from universities, I really got this 
you know, I actually invited him to come spend some time with me in another residency I was in. I was like, I want to be in a band, but I have no idea what that means. And he was like, I want to make a movie. And I was like, do you know what that means? And so, (laughs) you know, we sort of got this idea that we wanted to do something together that would, like, be about our impulse to teach and learn from each other's um, main uh, creative impulses and also to kind of embrace how how committed we each are to teaching and learning as like a central like it's not separate from our creative practice it's it's at you know cuz we work collaboratively we work in ensembles and so you're always teaching and learning in that context and then also the very specific craft of teaching and learning you know is something that we're both very committed to and have in common and i teach so much like him it's kind of uncanny so and this collaboration kind of derived from that in a in a pretty concrete way. But in a sense, it's like, you know, he's my dad. So that means we've been collaborating uh, since uh, I was born. Right. <laughs> and so in that sense, you know, ongoing. But this is probably the most like formal ongoing process. You know, we've done these workshops together over the last several months. And that's new. We haven't taught together. And that's been really, really fun. Is that where you discovered how similar your teaching styles are? I kind are? of knew. I mean, I kind of knew. But it's particularly uncanny when we're together doing this stuff. The other video that's in the it's in the show is called Do I Know This Tune Because You Told It To Me or Do I Know It Because You're My Father? The title came from... I don't remember exactly when it, this kept happening, but I remember witnessing him do a workshop and him telling these stories and talking about sort of certain concepts of black music and how it works and what it means and listening and thinking, I know this. How do I know this? Did I come to a class with you? I didn't, you know, I was like, I'm sure I, I, I you know, I spent time on campus with you as a little kid. I've sort of witnessed some of these workshops before that, you know, He's a master teacher. He's been doing this for almost 50 years now. I'm sure that I've witnessed some element of this before. Certain things I was like, okay, I remember you saying this. And then other things I was thinking, did I read this in a book about kind of the general concepts of African-American cultural production and stuff that, you know, he is part of that sort of body of knowledge? Or is it stuff that I just know because this is this is just the, the information of our lives together? And so a lot of this process has been really fun and interesting and sweet of kind of recognizing all these commonalities and almost having such a long, deep kind of knowledge of each other, but then also discovery at the same time because we are working together in new ways and trying things in new ways um, kind of as we go. And so all of those things kind of together, I think, have allowed – for this sense of, oh, wow, look at all these similarities. (laughs) Look at our kind of capacities to not like mimic each other, but to kind of complement each other. I mean, that's part of where the similarities go. We're both performers. We're both teachers. We're both kind of very aware of how we're operating in the room together. And so some of the similarities is us echoing each other in real time when we're working together, just like we do when we play music together or do any other kind of creative thing together. How does your work as an artist intersect with your commitment to social justice? Pretty fundamentally, 
one of the great privileges of my upbringing is being raised not just by an artist, well, by artists, both my parents are artists. So being raised by like artistic and creative people who were also very, very concretely like working class black people. And that the idea that somehow art is this kind of like frivolous thing that is either, and, and I mean specifically it as a pursuit of beauty, you know, and the pursuit of form and the pursuit of knowledge, right, um, is somehow outside of the realities of being a like just hardworking person, which is not a lie that I <laughs> was raised with, right? It just, it, it, I do believe it's a lie that somehow our concept of art is still sort of in the like 15th century court or something, right? <laughs> that that's like for the kings and queens. But even in that context, it's like those people are appreciating, but then the people who are making the art are still not of the, right? There's still these like working regular people. You know, just that those rich people are the ones who could pay for their shit. So, like, that's a that's just having a relationship to money, which anybody <laughs> who works in any way has, right? But the people making it are, you know, span the spectrum. And that not only does capitalism tell that lie, I think sometimes my dear, dear esteemed colleagues within various social justice movements can also capitulate that lie. Right. And also taking that lie, this idea that if it is not very specifically for the movement, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean, that it, it that it's frivolous or art for its own sake, as if that's somehow different than art for the sake of change. I don't actually believe in that dichotomy. I think it's bullshit. And part of the reason I don't believe it is that what is more transformative individually or broadly than having a moment with a piece of art that is inexplicable, right? Going to a museum, listening to a piece of music, seeing something, and just having an experience with it that is nonsensical, right? That hits you in that kind of gut level. You can't even explain it. Maybe it has some big message, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe it is just gorgeous. You know, maybe it just moves you. Maybe it makes you feel sick. Maybe it pisses you off. Maybe it does all these things, but it moves you. What is more transformative than that? Right. And then what is more transformative for someone making is to say, I'm going to let go of the possibility of its perfection or its functionality, which isn't to say there aren't plenty of artists who I don't respect. Right. For all kinds of reasons or don't, you know, whatever. But my point is that, like, that dichotomy, I just I just don't I don't buy it. I think it's a setup. I think it's it comes from scarcity, right? The sense that there's only a certain number of artists who can make things. That somehow there's a scarcity of ideas and capacity to make them. I just don't believe that that's true. Um, I think we live in capitalism and so scarcity is what we deal in, but that doesn't mean that that's who we are. So that's the first part where it's like, I would say that my work is very invested in kind of letting go of the idea that things that we do are only valuable in terms of being used. And I think that my work is very invested in kind of embracing contradictions. So on the one hand, I'm like a nerd who's all about beauty. On the other hand, I, like I said, I was raised by working class artists. And so part of our job is to get things done so that we can make money and like 
You know what I mean? Like this thing again, where it's like, oh, I don't want to make money. It's like, who? What else are you gonna do? You gotta make money. You live in capitalism. <laughs> like you gotta do the thing, right? And there's you different. A roof over your head. Right, exactly. Yeah. Got to eat. Got to do the thing. And so, you know, you gotta teach, or you gotta sell the painting, or you gotta make an album that will sell. So, you know, there's a kind of in complexity that I think is a very important kind of political and survival strategy that I feel really committed to as an artist and as a teacher in all sorts of ways where more than one thing can be true at once, right? I'm invested in the pursuit of beauty and knowledge and I got to pay my bills and I think capitalism sucks and I think, you know, like, and everything I'm doing is me trying to navigate all of those things. Part of my impulse around collaboration is also a function of my sort of political investments. Like the way I think about collaboration and why I think of it as a the way I've learned it through a specific black cultural production paradigm, through improvisation, through black music, although not only through those means, is that there's this sort of tension that you're always having to create between individual expression and a collective need to make a thing happen, right, to survive as a group. Um, and that those things aren't opposites, but they can have a tension. In fact, their tension is what makes the work interesting. And also learning how to be both an individual and working in a group in ways that can embrace many different things at once, embrace complexity, embrace contradiction, embrace change, you know, Change is inevitable. Change is happening. The world is, you know, ending, quote unquote. And I say that in quotes because, I don't know, maybe it's ending for late capitalism. Arguably, I've come, I come from a cultural reality where, you know, I've, my people have lived through a couple of apocalypses already, right? Yeah. And so have others. And our world isn't going to stay the same. It is going to change. And making that change graceful and worthwhile and move towards the thing that we want that is better, that is um, resilient and that is possible requires that kind of ability to live in those contradictions. And so that's what I see as like my part of those worlds. It's like I'm not the person to come to to create a like really well-designed <laughs> propaganda poster. Somebody needs to make that poster. I'm not, not the one. That's not my work. Um, even when I made my film about, you know, about uh, um, the Newark riots, I think, you know, there were some people who saw it were kind of like, you know, why aren't you – giving us the all the background about all the ways that the cops are terrible. And I was like, uh, A, because someone else is doing that who is better at that than I am. But also this is, I'm doing a different thing, right? I'm participating in a set of conversations about the reality, the ongoing reality of that kind of violence, the ways that people live with, live through and resist that kind of violence. And it's kind of, impact on us on a kind of visceral and personal level. And I think that is a huge element of our capacities to imagine what a world looks like that doesn't have that violence. A love song got my name three decades before I was born. My name is that teacher that tells the same stories over and over until you get it. 
a gift that reminds us that love begins with trust. And that trust makes room for freedom. That trust makes room for freedom. When my father was talking about the work in this last couple of workshops that we did when he was here last week, he was talking about how critical it is to have a whole bunch of work that commits to the concept and question of love when in the context of a cultural work that derives from the experience of being a slave and a descendant of slaves. If you are a human being, you are a musician. In my humble opinion, my opinion, which is not so humble, but in my not so humble, humble opinion, if you are a human being, you are in fact a musician. People are afraid of musicians, but at the same time, people love musicians, or at least they love what we do. They don't necessarily love us, but they love what we produce. And in an, in an environment where you are a slave or a descendant of a slave, that becomes a problem, you see? Because what you do gets commodified, and what you do gets bought and sold, just like you used to get bought and sold. Bought and sold. Bought and sold. You can be mad at that if you are a slave or descendant of a slave. You can be angry at that. You can ignore that. You can try to ignore that that happened. Or you can devise strategies where you survive that. So it's like love. What's more important? That's a self-love, right? Like, you know, love of someone else when you're being constantly told that you're not actually even a person is a huge risk to take. It's huge. Most people I know, especially, you know, I'm queer, a lot of the people in my life, being allowed to love, thinking of your love as not being dangerous, thinking of your love as being allowed, being legislated, be, you know, all these things. And so my approach to that is to get into the nitty gritty of the sort of humanness of those things that get kind of politicized. It's not so much that I don't want to talk about how they're politicized. It's sort of like I want to borrow those things back from the political sphere and make them like, I, you know, I'm just I'm trying to be a person. Like I'm trying to be a full ass human <laughs> and have access to all that range of possibility and want others to do the same. And so this is my little corner of that, that impulse towards justice is that like the just world that we live in is one where people aren't having to, you know, question their capacity and being allowed to love. Naima Lowe's installation, Aren't They All Just Love Songs Anyway, was created through the Jack Straw New Media Gallery residency program. Podcast interviewer is Alyssa Keen. Producers are Levi Fuller and Joel Maddox. Engineer is Joel Maddox. Jackstraw Executive Director is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jackstraw Artist Residency Programs are made possible with support from the Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, Washington State Arts Commission, National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. 
To learn more about our arts programs and hear more podcasts, visit us at jackstraw.org.